three, two, one. Welcome to the Briar Systems Podcast. I'm sitting down with Lynx tonight. Um, Lynx is a crypto enthusiast. She definitely made large impressions on me and my time in blockchain and NFTs. And uh, Lynx, if you'd like to introduce yourself and give a little bit of background. Sure. So I, I run online as Lynx Solid. My real name is Joe Marquardt, and I have several degrees. I'm overly educated and well-rounded dork and a, what's called a Web3 socialite. Um, I entered the crypto space probably back in 2015, 2016, but I became very active probably in late 2019, early 2020, especially as the NFT market started to kick off. And funny enough, I was a big skeptic. I thought, it's all a scam. It's all just one big Ponzi scheme. But the more I started to understand blockchain and smart contract technology, the more I began to realize what the innovation could be through the different iterations that are coming through the market. And that was what caught my interest. That's awesome. Yeah, I definitely was a big skeptic when I entered the space as well. Um, but slowly learning about the technology and hearing all of the enthusiasts continuously amping up the technology made me interested. So, uh, you know, when I did get into crypto, I got into crypto on Coinbase and these centralized exchanges until I met people like you who taught me a little bit about DeFi. So could you tell me, um, how you wound up getting into DeFi? Yeah, so it's a funny story. Um, I got divorced, very unfortunately. And during the divorce, I knew that my husband had bought cryptocurrency assets. I could see the transfers from the bank account. And it wasn't like he he did that in a shady way. He, He was very transparent with me that he was buying crypto. But I didn't know anything about how to access the crypto or the wallet. And um, as part of the divorce process, um, he realized he didn't know the pen code for the for the ledger. And then he went looking for the passphrases, which unfortunately he washed in the laundry when he did his laundry for the first time in 14 years. So in short, our crypto wallet got burned. Um, and I didn't understand what that meant. I thought it's like a bank account, right? You can just go ask for a password reset. And so that started my journey into Web3 and understanding what being a self-custodian of a DeFi wallet really meant. Um, And it became important to me to advocate to not just, I wouldn't just say women, but for other women who are in positions like me where they just might not be familiar with the technology um, about, you know, how, how do you go about getting involved with these conversations? How do you understand what a DeFi wallet is? How do you understand and, and are able to communicate with your partner? And then the larger context of family planning about estate planning, you know, what if something happens to your partner who is involved with Web3? How do you transfer those assets? Um, how do you have that communication? So that was really what prompted me to start uh, becoming an advocate in the space to communicate that and break it down in a very simple way for people to understand what Web3 is and how to use a DeFi wallet safely. Absolutely. Those are very important tenets. And to explain to people who might not be familiar with uh, DeFi, once you get your custodial wallet, you'll receive a seed phrase, which is a bunch of words randomly organized. And uh, you have to utilize that as your access point to that wallet. And if you lose that, uh, you're basically up creek without a paddle, so to say. But that's only the biggest downside to it. The rest of it is it's completely secure. you're able to f- manage your finances independently from utilizing any institutional uh, company or bank. So it's kind of liberating in certain ways. Well, and I think the other aspect is unlike traditional finance where like what we saw happen in the 2008 
um, housing crisis, which was where banks were leveraging assets that the individuals who were banking, like everyday individuals like you and myself, were banking with these banks. We didn't realize that they were over leveraged on these um, bad loans that they were pushing out on the market, right? And as a result of the bubble bursting in the real estate market, a lot of us lost money in the stock market or had houses reclaimed. I mean, it was, it was awful what people went through. And that was the basis for creating blockchain technology is that all of that's now transparent. So you can go on the blockchain and see what the leverage is. You can see what the transactions are. You can see who's holding what. And that is the definition of decentralized finance is that it's all publicly available, written on a blockchain, not one organization, not one individual, not one entity owns the data. It's decentralized across a bunch of different servers that make it available. And we use the seed phrases that you mentioned before as our authentication to update the information on the blockchain. And so I think there's a lot of transparency of record and finances and who's doing what and where and how much on the blockchain. Um, than there is in um, old school financial sectors. Absolutely. So instead of, you know, hiding things in an institutional manner, businesses that do business on the blockchain are transparent. And they're really, there's very little reason to not do business on the blockchain. Right. So I, I, definitely grasp that and you know you helped teach me that over this past year so i'm glad i taught you something i'm glad i teach anybody <laughs> anything i put content out there and i i never have any idea if people are looking at it or if it's useful so it's good to get the feedback um that it's teaching people well it's definitely useful and it's definitely been inspirational uh, i will say you know a lot of projects that I've seen people dabble in haven't really come to fruition to the best of their ability, but there's a lot of projects out there still working through the spare market and attempting to make things work for the people who basically have bought into that community. Uh, so what projects are you currently invested in? Yeah, you know, NFTs, um, they're a whole different beast than crypto. Because you have crypto, the tokens, which we think of more like currency, um, where we're using that to make purchase or sales um, and keep track of value. And then NFTs are uh, a very different market. There's, there's a couple different types where you get NFTs that are just straight up artwork. Um, so, you know, you think of them like buying art and then you have NFTs that have utility around them is where when you buy into the project, like you're mentioning, there's some sort of value that's given back to you. So I tend to stay more in NFTs with utility. Um, I have no taste or style whatsoever at all. <laughs> and so me, me buying NFTs for art would be laughable because uh, I would probably buy the most distasteful thing ever <laughs> and think it's cute. Um, but NFTs for with utility, there's a couple different projects that I'm involved in. One is, of course, I'm an Azuki holder. And um, the reason I became involved with Azukis is not necessarily because of the artwork, although I do love anime. And if you see the style of art, it's actually the same artist behind Overwatch who developed the anime art for Azuki. And Steam Boy is an amazing artist. But what really sold me was when I realized that there was a developer on the project called Cygar. And Cygar wrote what's called the ERC two, uh, I'm sorry, ERC 721A uh, smart contract. And what that allows for us to do is to mint multiple NFTs and only pay one transaction fee. Because before, when we would go buy an NFT, we would have to pay a transaction fee on every NFT that we bought. And on Ethereum at the time, the fees were very high. We called them gas fees, but they were, they were incredibly expensive. And so you would limit yourself to maybe purchasing one or two NFTs just because the transaction fees would cost as much, if not more, than the NFT itself. 
Um, but that ERC 721A smart contract allows you to buy 10 of them and only pay one transaction fee, for example. So that made things a lot more affordable. So when I saw that he was developing that kind of technology, and um, then there's also another developer, TPM Flow, who's just an incredible um, developer. I've worked with him on a couple different things, resolving errors around um, Wallet Connect and working with uh, blockchains that are not as um, often utilized as Ethereum. So the, the two of them just really impressed me. At this point, I wanted to buy Riziki. Um, they're very expensive, and I had to really debate whether or not I wanted to do that. But once I saw the technology they were building, um, it was a no-brainer for me. And then one of the other projects that I'm really big on is called Achilles. And that's led by a fellow named Rami. He's Docs, so I don't mind saying his real name, but his online name is Achilles. But um, Rami is a, a lawyer, and he has a Web2-based company where he provides incubation and legal services for startup companies. And he's moved, he's created essentially a, a synonymous model for it in Web3. So the Achilles project is um, assisting people in developing their Web3 companies and their constructs and helping them launch. And through that project, I met a group called Meta Engineers. And Meta Engineers is looking at taking the engineering community and creating a collaborative metaverse environment where they can work with and engage um, with each other in a metaverse environment and develop AI technologies and engineering projects and products and demonstrate them to the public so that they can all see what they're doing. And additionally, part of that Google Scholar do, the publications that they're writing will be published to blockchain along with the data behind the publication. The authors will be authenticated through the blockchain and any citations that come from um, their research would be tracked through the blockchain. It's gonna reduce the amount of plagiarism and it should reduce the amount of conflict over IP of who developed what first because we'll be able to look at the blockchain and see the timestamp and we'll know. So those are the big projects that I'm in right now. And that's an impressive list. You know, I it was, I think, almost uh, a year ago, probably eight months ago, that I learned about the Azuki contract. And some platforms have adopted it to transfer NFTs just from their platform everything from marketplaces to just investors. So it's great what some of these projects are bringing to the blockchain. Um, sure. And that Azuki contract looks great on layer ones. Um, now when you get to uh, layer two uh, companies like Polygon, where they already have reduced fees because they're actually doing all the transactions off the blockchain and then they just write the final results to the blockchain. Um, so they, they're able to do it at a much reduced fee because it's only until you start writing to the Ethereum blockchain that that you get these high expenses. Um, so some of these poly, some of these layer two companies um, don't really need or don't see the efficiency in adopting um, the Azuki smart contract. But for most everybody who's still minting on OpenSea or any of these uh, NFT platforms that are working on Ethereum or even Crypto.com, Kronos Chain, um, some of these other smaller chains, side chains, they definitely see a, a inefficiency in using that smart contract. That smart contract is just killer. It's literally two lines of code. That's what blew me away. He did it in like two lines of code. Now, is the ERC-721A code also utilized to just mint on? Is that the one that you're able to mint from contract? So I have actually gotten the chance to utilize that a few times, and it's pretty awesome the way that it just kicks out NFTs right from contract. Right. I mean, it's it's pretty slick. So when we're talking about contracts, if you could explain to the people listening a little bit about oh, the contract and the code that we're talking about. Absolutely. So we have the blockchain which you should think of more as a ledger. And when I say ledger, if you're old enough to remember back in the day when we had checkbooks 
and you had to write the transaction in and record how much you spend and write the transaction in of how much you receive from your paycheck. It's so it's like an Excel sheet, right? Like where you're just recording all the information. That's what the blockchain truly is. It's a public ledger. But with Ethereum, and this is a difference between Ethereum and Bitcoin, because Bitcoin does not do smart contracts on the on layer one, so not directly on its blockchain. But Ethereum allows you to insert into the ledger code. So we're not just talking about transactions, we're also talking about bits of code. And what we've created there are what's called smart contracts, where instead of having written contracts of party A is going to pay this much and party B is going to deliver this good product or service, um, what happens is we have it coded into the blockchain. So when you send the money out, the blockchain runs the code and says, okay, you get this NFT. You've sent the money in, NFT is delivered to the same wallet where the money came from. And that's called a smart contract. And it, and they're, I'm, I'm dumbing it down for, for example, but you get even more complex where we talk about uh, DAOs, DAOs, D, Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. And those are like self-governing bodies. Um, think of them like professional organizations where they, they might have voting privileges over what the project's going to do, or they might have uh, voting privileges over how the money's going to be spent. And that entire agreement over how the voting is going to happen and who's a member of the DAO and all of that is recorded in the smart contract on the blockchain. So whenever they go and interact with a token that they have that shows their membership, that's what enables that code to run. And then for all their access, for all their rights, for all their permissions, all the things they're allowed to do happen based on code. So the premise behind that was that, one, it would reduce the amount of accounting that we would need to do because it's all recorded on the blockchain. And two, it should reduce the amount of legal interactions that we all have with each other because instead of having written contracts that we have to mediate and litigate through, the, that contract is actually coded into the blockchain. So those actions are just, um, they're just executed by the code. So that's what we call a smart contract. And, and they take a variety of different forms in smart contracts. Hopefully I answered your question there. Absolutely. Uh, now, are you familiar with the different uh, coding programs that are used for blockchains? Sure, we've got a couple different ones. The, the primary one that's being used on most blockchains at the moment is called Solidity. Um, but there's a couple other smaller, not widely adopted. Um, Flow is one that's um, being adopted on Axos, which actually comes from Flow Networks, which is by Dapper Labs. Um, and for reference sake, uh, for the NFT community, that is uh, CryptoKitties. They were the first NFT ever to launch. So they have their own blockchain called Flow, and um, it's, it's much less heard of in the community. But it's actually a really solid network with uh, great IP rights um, built around their NFTs. Um, I had the opportunity to get to know some of the executives involved with Dapper Labs, and they're, they're pretty solid community over there. But Solidity is still primarily the, the coding language that we're using for most blockchains. So what... Uh... What are the benefits of utilizing Solidity over centralization? Uh, and also, what intellectual property rights do NFT projects have to institute on a centralized level? Do they have to go get patents or, you know, copyrights? That's a really good question. Um, in terms of the benefits of using Solidity, I would just say that it's, primarily because it's portable across most of the blockchains since most of the blockchains are using Solidity. So if, for instance, you created an NFT project, a smart contract, whatever, and you wanted to port your project from one blockchain to another, or not even necessarily port, but you wanted to be multi-chain because we're seeing more projects go multi-chain where they're like Ethereum, VeChain, Kronos, um, Cardano, uh, there might be any of these chains. They might be wanting to circulate their assets um, across these different chains or have their projects running on multiple chains. Um, Solidity really allows you to do that because you're 
you're basically using the language that all the other teams understand. So that's the benefit of using Solidity. In terms of the IP rights around NFTs, it's a very good question because it's still very muddled, right? We have companies like Crypto.com who launched Loaded Lions in November. I think they launched them in November of 2021. And um, they limited the um, rights that holders have for using the image of the loaded line because they have crypto.com icons in some of those uh, loaded lion images. So crypto.com did not convey full rights and IP uh, to the users or the owners of those NFTs. It's sort of a hybrid conversation. Now you get into other projects like Board Ape Yacht Club where they fully conveyed the rights of the images and the NFTs. And we've seen Board Ape Yacht Club members who have taken the image of their Board Ape from their NFT, so the artwork associated to their NFT, and they have created companies around the artwork. Now, I'm an Azuki holder, and I have full IP rights around the artwork for my Azuki, Lindsay, here in the space. And we call her Lindsay Lynch. I'm Lynch, but my NFT is Lindsay Lynch. And I use Lindsay Lynch as my brand image. She's on everything that I do in terms of Web3 consulting. So she's on my business profile. Um, I do not have her copyrighted. I do not have her trademark. I don't feel that I need to because she's on the blockchain. And it's very clear that I own the IP rights to that image according to the blockchain for someone NFT. But at some point, I probably will go down the road and be what's called a merchandise IP Um, and trademarker for for merchandise purchases. Um, But it's clearly recorded on the blockchain. I own the artwork and I've been using it, so that'll help me when I go to file for my trademark. Um, So that's sort of a quick run through of the different IP aspects. And then, yeah, I I think that's most of it. Some communities are a little bit confused on what their IP rights are because there was this conversation that happened about creative rights um, around IP. And I think I can't for, it's not Apocalyptic Inc. It was another one of the ape communities that, that ran afoul of that because it wasn't, it wasn't decided in advance whether or not they would have the IP rights to their NFT artwork. And that became a problem. And so they had to be granted their, their rights through Creative Commons down the road. And it, it sort of opened up a can of worms. Yeah, I, I have seen the confusion in different communities. Um, our company logo for the Briar Systems, we launched our uh, Meta Bear that we minted. It was a one-on-one. So I felt that it was very special. I was told that I could do with it what I will. Uh, but it was a little confusing because the project owners were also utilizing my specific NFT in comic books, in merchandise, in advertising. So I had another artist kind of step on it, add a background, add some traits, and then I launched it as the face of my token and as the company logo. So uh, at the same time, I haven't gone out and gotten it copyrighted because I didn't feel I had to either. But, you know, you talking about bringing copyright into the fold definitely uh, piques my interest. You know, I could change it. I'm sorry, go ahead. It does create a, an interesting conversation because, you know, who truly has the rights to use the artwork? Is it a project that created the artwork? Is it the artist who created the artwork who may or may no longer be with the project? Is it the person who bought the NFT and believes they own the artwork? Um, and then, you know, worse than that is when someone decides to go right-click save the image like we we do have some tools to inhibit that right click save option, but if you're using your NFT on Twitter, um, you know it doesn't stop anybody on Twitter from going and taking your profile image, right click saving and uploading it as their own profile image, and and so in the copyright world, if you don't tell other people who are using your copyright to stop, then it becomes um, part of the public copyright, which means anyone can use it. 
and then now you can no longer enforce your right to any royalties or income from the copyright that you own on that image. So it's, it's a really weird conversation um, that I think we'll start to see more clarity on over the next year. And I think one of the area, other areas where I've seen some movement on this conversation, funny enough, has been in the tattoo industry. I work with um, Jesse Smith and a couple of the other large uh, tattoo artists in the NFT industry. And it's like, do they have permission to put an NFT on someone's body? If they do, and they take that NFT and put it on someone's body, are they allowed to derive profit or do they owe a certain back to the owner of the NFT? Like, how does all that work? So that's still another big area that we're working through. And there's a couple of lawsuits um, going currently on intellectual property rights and copyright. And, and it's actually the tattoo industry that I think is going to end up resolving these questions for us and not necessarily the general industry as well. Wow, it's very interesting. You know, I I got the chance to meet Jesse Smith and talk to him, pick his brain a little bit. He's a fantastic artist, and uh, he brings a lot to the table when it comes to the NFT community. I'm looking forward to a uh, wonderful human being and his Parquet project. I was so excited to see you come to Web3 because he brought a whole new audience to Web3 from his tattoo industry. And um, I just, I, I loved them and, and they've been, they were amazing to work with when we were onboarding. Absolutely. His artwork's amazing. You know, I still have some of his pieces. And I look forward to seeing where he brings it ultimately. Uh, yeah. I do know the blockchain is ultimate extreme digital ownership. And I know a lot of people are very passionate about it, but at the same time, you know, it would be the same thing if somebody got, a Patriots logo tattooed on them. Granted, you know, it's a, it's not necessarily a commodity. It's protected property, but you know, would, I don't think the NFL would think it's a smart idea to tell its fans that it can't, <laughs> it can't have their logo on them. If anything, I'd I'd picture it as being free advertising. And as long as they're not, you know, profiting over a certain dollar amount, of uh, the NFT, or if they're using it for malicious intent, uh, those would be the two extreme scenarios where I felt legal intervention should then take precedence. Right. And I think if you talk with a lot of the tattoo artists, they'll, um, they'll fill you in that they, they actually do buy packs of templates of different brands um, that they can go in and tweak and modify something, customize it to you as an individual. But, but a lot of them actually are buying, uh, in, in some way, these templates of tattoos. So they are kind of paying royalty at the end of the day, and I think that's why it hasn't been a bigger conversation. Um, but, yeah, there, there's been some conversations about, um, especially famous individuals who – end up having their tattoos lifted and put on other people. So there's some, there's some interesting lawsuits in the tattoo industry. Well, I do know that they defend a lot of their art uh, very, very savagely because uh, I grew up with a lot of friends in the tattoo industry, mostly artists and tattoo shop owners. And I've seen almost fistfights break out on the street when if an apprentice finishes somebody's or who wasn't approved to do so, or another shop starts working on somebody else's art. Right. And uh, to me, it seemed a little ridiculous, but I guess in that industry, it would make sense if someone's taking your livelihood from you. That's how they defend their bread and butter, for sure. So where do you see the Web3 blockchain technology and NFT communities going in the future? primarily because economically people had extra money to spend. Um, I think we saw NFTs as a fashion, right? So we saw the, the era of the PFT NFT, right? And I think that's starting to come to an end because the economic situation over the next 18 months is pretty bleak, right? A lot of us are not going to have extra income. 
um, costs of goods are going to go up, our wages are going to be held the same if they don't go down, and we're looking at um, really high rates of inflation, even though they're holding steady. You might think this would be a good thing that they're holding steady, but remember we had no inflation before. So I think we're gonna see an end of an era of um, NFTs as a fashion statement. And I think we're gonna start moving into NFTs as a technology. And that's, I'm actually really excited for that. I'm really excited to see kind of the end of the fashionable era of NFTs and move into what this smart contract and NFT technology could be for the medical industry, for um, uh, supply chain technology, for transportation technology, for um, safety technology. I, I think there's a whole lot more applications coming down the road that are just incredible that they've been working on behind the scenes and they've just been waiting to announce that they're doing it. And um, quite frankly, it's actually going to get more affordable in this next economic sector for them to launch than it was um, two years ago because everything was just so hot and popular. Absolutely. Um, I've also noticed that blockchain technology is becoming more accessible to the everyday user and developer. Uh, there's an app more recently that came out. It's called Third Web, and it has pre-built smart contracts that you could compile, copy, and paste to create your own smart contract to carry out the scripts and uh, and actions that you'd wish it to. So it's just like a decentralized platform where you can just make your own smart contract bits by bit by bit. I love the fact that we're getting more user friendly. I will say though that smart contract is going to manage the money. So if you're gonna use your, um, what you see is what you get sort of smart contract builder, you definitely need to do your own research and make sure that they're reputable and that they don't have the ability to siphon off the money out of the smart contract because you're not actually working with the code. And so you might not see that they have some sort of backdoor into the code. I don't know that um, the particular platform that you mentioned has that problem, but I um, I actually haven't heard of that yet. But I, I do think it's something that we might run into in the future of just bad actors, and that's just straight up bad actors. So. Um, definitely do your own research when you start using these tools and make sure that you can read a smart contract or you've got a friend who can read a smart contract and verify that it's it's going to be a good contract. And uh, But I also know that we've got turnkey marketplaces, NFT marketplaces coming down the road where anybody will be able to pretty much launch an NFT marketplace and mint NFT projects through their own marketplace, which I think is fantastic because we've moved away from an era of traditional advertising with commercials and because none of us watch commercials anymore we all do tv on demand and um you know pop-up blockers on our on our uh, web browsers and and so it's really like how how do you even find um nfts that you want to buy when they're all over the place and i think that's where social media influencers really step in because they have to build a reputation and they have to be rock solid or people won't follow them. And um, so I'm expecting to see this turnkey NFT marketplace uh, that's coming up uh, for social media influencers to adopt that pretty quickly and, and essentially provide portfolios of projects that they think are gonna be great for people to invest in. So I'm loving that we're getting to more turnkey solutions. And then we saw Polygon just hit it. I mean, with, with Reddit, that Reddit launch was beautiful, where it was just, you swipe a credit card and you bought an NFT and you had no idea you were even buying an NFT. People thought they were buying a skin, but it's in fact an NFT and it's recorded on the blockchain on a layer two. Yeah, it's awesome when these institutions are coming on board. And that's one thing that a lot of people are hoping over this next year is that institutions are gonna be bringing, um, you know, business money to the blockchain. But I think you're very right. It's very close to the end of fashionable NFTs, strictly for the art, and then more of a practical use of blockchain and businesses. So we'll see where it brings us, but, you know, hopefully we can open our sales and 
the winds of change will bring us to the place where we want to be. Right. And that, that doesn't mean that all fashionable NFTs will go away. I just think they'll be less popular, right? Like it'll still be there as a market. There will still be a market for fashionable NFTs, but um, I think we're going to shift away from that being the main focus and moving more into the technological applications. So what's your opinion of the legislation going on in America? Uh, from what I remember, you were involved with a project that was trying to get set up as being a, uh, a legal registered business in the United States, which uh, seems next to near impossible right now. It's actually really not hard to get set up as a legal entity that sells NFTs in the United States. The real conversation is happening between let me see if I can get my acronyms correct here. Sometimes I get my letters reversed. But it's the SEC and the FCTFC. No, CFTC. There you go. CFTC. I can say it. My friends who are in the room laughing at me because, you know, she's like, yeah, she's a little dyslexic. Um, <laughs> anyways, so we have one government entity. Oh, and then you get the IRS involved. So we have one government entity that, that says that NFTs are a security. We have another governmental entity that's saying, NFTs might be a commodity or they might be a security. Kind of depends on when you're looking at it and the frame of time and also what you're doing with it. And then we have the IRS, which says neither of these things and says cryptocurrency is property and is, is neither a commodity nor a security. <laughs> but NFTs, they won't make a ruling on because they're waiting on the SEC. So the conversation around the SEC, um, and I've, I've had conversations with a couple of the general counsels for some of the larger um, NFT companies, um, and I'm just a policy analyst, so let me add that as a caveat. I can't, this is not legal advice, nor is it financial advice. This is my perspective as a policy analyst, and I have a master's in public policy um, administration. So in short, from the policy perspective, if you're doing NFTs as artwork, you're probably okay. Now consult with an attorney and consult with your financial advisor and securities advisor, right? But you're probably okay to be considered a commodity because you're just a you're just a good. Like even at the the core spirit of what you're doing, you're just a good or a service. You're really not um, a security. When we get into NFTs that have utility attached to them, it becomes problematic. So when you're talking about if you buy an NFT and you'll get an airdrop or you'll get another airdrop or you'll get access to a token or um, there will be some amount of interest returned to you from staking the rewards of the NFT of these things where profit is being returned to you because of someone else's efforts. Now we're wading into the territory of what's called the Howey test. And the Howey test is what is generally applied to determine if something is a security. So some of these NFT projects look, smell, feel, quack like a duck, at which point I think they're going to get called a security. And we've seen several lawsuits come down from the SEC looking at that. Right now we're seeing Board Ape Yacht Club under investigation, not for Board Apes and not for a lot of the NFTs they're holding, but it has to do with the ApeCoin DAO, the ApeCoin itself, and the relationship to other side metaverse and how that entire ecosystem is working. So we're seeing some legal tests being sorted out right now within um, the SEC trying to determine if it's a security or a commodity. Like I said, it's a very gray area. We would love to say that all NFTs are one lump or the other, but the reality is some NFTs are probably going to get classified as commodities, some are going to get classified as securities, and some of them are going to get classified as a service, and we're going to get different rule sets applied. What I'd love to see going down the road is if we could split that up into different types of smart contracts so that people know if I'm this contract, I'm this type of NFT, and it would be very clear on the blockchain and the registry. And then not only that, it would be very clear for reporting to the government and for people who are involved with the project. I don't know if we'll get that sophisticated or not, um, but I think that would provide a lot of transparency for people. Absolutely, and that's a fantastic view uh, and recommendation of future blockchain. Unfortunately, a lot of friends of mine who are uh, developers 
are just offshoring in record droves any kind of coding project that they're doing. Even major swaths of Silicon Valley are leaving the country and considering leaving the country right now, uh, predominantly because they're looking at software as securities. Uh, and America's the predominant driver of this because, you know, they're seeing mass transfers of wealth and uh, they seem to just want to crack down on it and get their piece of the pie, which is understandable. But I don't feel as if they know enough about it to be able to institute that in a responsible way without disrupting their own profitable profit margin, which is, you know, these developers are writing software when the software sells. It's taxed once and they're not taxing the customers and the utilization of that software every single day, regardless of the profit margin. They just want part of the profit margin at, at the end. So well, I think that's that's a very good point. I think a lot of people who come into the Web3 space launching projects, you'll hear it. I'm I'm a global citizen. I don't need to dox myself. I'm a global citizen. So therefore, I'm not answering to a governmental entity. But the reality is each one of us is a citizen somewhere in the world. And we have rights and privileges due to us through our citizenship, whatever country it's in. And as a result, in response, we are to comply with our government rules and regulations. So it's it's this thought that, you know, Web3 is unregulated. No, it's it's not. It's that we're not carrying our obligations of our citizenship into Web3 with us. And it is more global. And we do have to have this conversation about who has the responsibility to pay the tax? Which entity do we owe the tax to? How much tax do we need to be collecting and from whom? And that's a much larger conversation. I think that ApeCoin DAO is really going to be one of our biggest litmus tests because part of the SEC investigation around ApeCoin DAO is over the assumption is over the assumption that the DAO is so diversified globally through its membership that it does not need to comply with the SEC in registering ApeCoin as a security because they're saying that. The, the membership is so diverse and so diversified and dispersed across the world that you can't really say that ApeCoin DAO has enough citizens that are American or in the United States that they would need to, that they, they fall in the jurisdiction of the SEC. So that's going to be very good conversations that we're starting to have over policy over the next couple months. And, then and I, I definitely look forward to that as well. Um, I, I also wanted to correlate the uh, Comcast versus BitTorrent and Bit uh, Supreme Court case in 2006. Mm -hmm. So uh, to people listening who might not be familiar, back in the day, Miramax and all these large production companies, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said Miramax in general. I'm not completely sure exactly the production companies, but they continuously push for regulation through lobbyists, through politicians, through judges, trying to shut down uh, these torrent sites like Napster, LimeWire, BitTorrent. And uh, they felt as if they were hemorrhaging money and their intellectual property rights were being taken from them, as well as proprietary information. So judges did what they could, but they weren't able to do anything until the production companies civilly sued Comcast for allowing their customers to do business on their internet capabilities. And because of them allowing them to do that business, the production companies were at a loss and they won. So they sued Comcast. They won that suit. And from that suit, Comcast, only in America, mind you, uh, put massive pressure on their customers. So if their customers were one of the IP addresses doing this quote unquote malicious activity, their internet was throttled. Uh, they were denied Comcast services. Their computer would shut down. There were some cases of it, of them supposedly crashing. And at that point, BitTorrent sued Comcast. Uh, so BitTorrent was one of the last 
torrent websites still functioning and they felt like their customers were getting abused because they were using their platform. So they civilly sued Comcast in America. It made it all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court looked at every which way direction and basically slit the music industry's throat and the movie industry's throat and said that the transfer of data information over the internet is protected under the first and the first and the first amendment. So it was the freedom of information, freedom of speech. And that if they were going to impede that for the sake of a company's intellectual property, which they weren't willing to adjust, mind you, you know, these production companies weren't willing to make digital asset movies at that point. You know, they weren't trying to embrace the technology. They just tried to kill the technology, whether it through getting their lawyers to sue them, trying to pay off politicians, all these, this murky stuff, uh, they weren't able to do it. And the Supreme Court ruled in favor of BitTorrent, which allowed them to be one of the few torrent operating systems that was considered legal. Uh, Comcast backed off, but since that day, billions of dollars have gone into funds trying to destroy what was considered net neutrality, which was the freedom of speech on the internet. Slowly and surely, they're chipping away at it, and I feel as if this might be one of the last stands. Unfortunately, it comes at a very detrimental point in economics where people are utilizing blockchain to transfer tens of thousands, tens of millions, even billions of dollars. And the government feels like they're missing out on this industry, but instead of them embracing it and trying to find a way to nurture it, to become a a legitimized business, uh, within the legal boundaries, they'd rather just sue the companies that are developing, which is forcing all of these developers to just do it from afar in countries that embrace it, that want that kind of revenue stream, that embrace that kind of skilled talent to come to their country and do business. And uh, some, of, some of these countries are scary. <laughs> like, I wouldn't want to go and do business there. I don't think uh, just because they're very smart developers doesn't mean that they're intelligent enough to realize that. based in Nepal, where cryptocurrency is banned. And they're amazing to work with, I have to say. Um, They can only do it in a sandbox environment, and then we'll move on to production. They have to switch it over to a U.S.-based company for testing. Uh, But Remsan is one of the companies that work over there in Nepal. And then I work with a couple of companies in Bangalore. So I'm very familiar with what you're talking about. Um, I know some of the people on Mobi are working with uh, companies in Latin America, but it's not really an attempt to circumvent the government policies here in the United States. It's about trying to find good qualified developers to get these technologies that are an affordable price because so many of our developers here in the United States are Silicon Valley and they're used to $200,000, $400,000 a year salaries. And quite frankly, the companies coming into Web3 aren't willing to create a development house where all their developers are getting paid at that pay level. So, um, you know, yeah, we're outsourcing a lot. Um, But it it really is up to the individual, the company that's hiring and creating the project to make sure that they're complying with their local jurisdiction laws. And um, I do know that there are people attempting to work around it, and they're not establishing reputable LLCs or um, actual uh, companies in the real world where they're going to be doing their projects. And I think that's usually a red flag for investment for me. If they don't have an actual LLC somewhere that exists where I could sue them if they did something that they shouldn't with my money, um, then I, in general, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit more hesitant. But at the same time, one of the benefits of decentralization and Web3 and blockchain is that truly anybody can come in, right? We're there's no PhD in blockchain right now. Anyone who's telling you that is just a mind grab. I'm sorry. Anybody who's trying to sell you a PhD in blockchain technologies is just laughable. Absolutely. Yeah. We we actually went and tried to register our business legitimately in the United States of America 
we first tried in Connecticut because the governor himself, uh, his wife owns a cryptocurrency, like the only cryptocurrency company that I know of, like in my area. And uh, it's impossible in the state of Connecticut. They have no clear roadmap of being able to do so. So then we reached out with uh, the debt. Is very friendly. And in fact, they actually have um, a DAO LLC structure and it is called a DAO LLC for cryptocurrency uh, companies, primarily because um, Wyoming is a fervent believer in protecting the privacy of owners of companies where most other states want to know who the owner is. And the reason we want to know who the owner is is because if we do something that we shouldn't and there's a lawsuit involved, we need to know where to find you in order to serve you and notify you that there's now a lawsuit. I'm in Texas. Um, we do have legitimate LLC companies registered. I think uh, Yuga Labs, if I'm not mistaken, is registered in, in California. They might be registered in California. Delaware is also another state that is recognizing cryptocurrency LLCs. So those are the ones. I don't know about Connecticut in particular, but I do know that Delaware and Wyoming are definitely very, very friendly. Yeah, Connecticut is, is pretty horrible. The main reason of, I'm, I'm familiar with the Delaware laws of uh, corporate veils as well as Arizona is another one where they won't release uh, the LLC's assets just by uh, somebody filing a petition to find out. And granted, it's a little scary for investors, but at the same time in Connecticut and a lot of these other states, lawyers just submit um, an audit of assets for companies then put it in a, a file database and we'll sue those companies for no reason other than to see if they respond. And if they don't respond, then they just, you know, win the case and <laughs> gather assets or, you know, they don't necessarily have to serve them in some of these states. They just have to file it with the court. And unless you have a lawyer on tap who's checking the databases every day, you could just get sued without them ever telling you. So it just bankrupts businesses left and right. And the ones that are left here are basically old guard uh, that are protected by politicians and judges. So once it gets to the court system, the judge would either throw it out or not or make a valid effort to make sure that those corporations or businesses are notified. But, you know, I know Arizona, they don't allow that. You can't just pull up a corporation's list of assets because it, you know, filed a 1099-I and does their taxes. Um, so transparency is absolutely great in certain aspects, and in others, it's a little scary. I mean, you don't want to be the target of, you know, a weaponized government. Right. But, uh, yeah, links. thanks a lot for for showing up. I appreciate your point of view. We have to do it again, too. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. I, I've enjoyed the conversation, and I would love to come back um, whenever you'd like to have me. Great. Thank you very much, and uh, I'll wrap it